Welcome, friends. This is the first episode of Earworm Audio Theater, brought to you by Zach and Elizabeth. Today's piece is by Floyd Dell and is called Enigma, A Domestic Conversation. This piece features two characters named Helen and Paul, but in the script they are only referred to as she and he. For today's piece, Zach and I will be playing our identified genders respectively. The setting for this piece is not outlined explicitly, but it was written in the early 20th century in urban America, so that is where we are drawing inspiration from. We hope you enjoy the play. After we finish the read-through, we are going to be looking at who Floyd Dell was, and then we will open the floor for our discussion. Let the metaphorical curtain lift. So that is what you think. Yes. For us to live together any longer would be an obscene joke. Let's end it while we still have some sanity and decency left. Is that the best you can do in the way of sanity and decency? (sighs) To talk like that? You'd like to cover it up with pretty words, wouldn't you? Well, we've had enough of that. I feel as though my face were covered with spiderwebs. I want to brush them off and get clean again. It's not my fault you've got weak nerves. Why don't you try to behave like a gentleman? Instead of a weak minor poet. A gentleman, Helen, would have strangled you years ago. It takes a man with crazy notions of freedom and generosity to be the fool that I've been. I suppose you blame me for your ideas. I'm past blaming anybody, even myself. Helen, don't you realize that this has got to stop? We are cutting each other to pieces with knives. You want me to go. Or I'll go. It makes no difference. Only we've got to separate. Definitely... And forever. You really think there is no possibility of our finding some way? We might be able to find some way. We found some way, Helen, twice before, and this is what it comes to. There are limits to my capacity for self-delusion. This is the end. Yes. Only Only what? It seems such a pity. Pity? The pity is this, that we should sit here and haggle about our hatred. That, 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 that is all that there's left between us. I won't haggle, Paul. If you think we should part, we shall this very night. But I don't want to part this way, Paul. I know I've hurt you. I want to be forgiven before I go. Can't we finish without another sentimental lie? I'm in no mood to act out a pretty scene with you. That was unjust, Paul. You know I don't mean that. What I want is to make you understand, so you won't hate me. More explanations. I thought we had both got tired of them. I used to think it possible to heal a wound by words, but we ought to know better. They're like acid in it. Please don't, Paul. This is the last time we shall ever hurt each other. Won't you listen to me? Go on. I know you hate me. You have a right to. Not just because I was faithless, but because I was cruel. I don't want to excuse myself, but I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't realize I was hurting you. We've gone over that a thousand times. Yes, I've said that before. And you've answered me that that excuse might hold for the first time, but not for the second and the third. You've convicted me of deliberate cruelty on that. And I've never had anything to say. I couldn't say anything because the truth the truth was too preposterous. It wasn't any use telling it before. But now I want you to know the real reason. 
a new reason, huh? Something I've never confessed to you. Yes, it is true that I was cruel to you. Deliberately. I did want to hurt you. And do you know why? I wanted to shatter that Olympian serenity of yours. You were too strong, too self-confident. You had the air of a being that nothing could hurt. You were like a god. That was a long time ago. Was I ever Olympian? I had forgotten it. You succeeded very well. You shattered it in me. You are still Olympian, and I still hate you for it. I wish I could make you suffer now, but I have lost my power to do that. Aren't you contented with what you have done? It seems to me that I have suffered enough recently to satisfy even your ambitions. No, or you couldn't talk like that. You sit there making phrases. Oh, I have hurt you a little, but you will recover. You always recovered quickly. You are not human. If you were human, you would remember that once we were happy. And be a little sorry that all that is over. But you can't be sorry. You have made up your mind and can think of nothing but that. That's an interesting and novel explanation. I wonder if I can't make you understand. Paul, do you remember when we fell in love? Something of that sort must have happened to us. No. It happened to me. It didn't happen to you. You made up your mind and walked in with the air of a god on a holiday. It was I who fell, headlong, dizzy, blind. I didn't want to love you. It was a force too strong for me. It swept me into your arms. I prayed against it. I had to give myself to you, even though I knew you hardly cared. I had to. My heart was no longer in my own breast. It was in your hands to do what you liked with. You could have thrown it in the dust. This is all very romantic and exciting, but tell me, did I throw it in the dust? It pleased you not to. You put it in your pocket. But don't you realize what it is to feel that another person has absolute power over you? No, for you have never felt that way. You have never been utterly dependent on another person for happiness. I was utterly dependent on you. It humiliated me, angered me. I rebelled against it, but it was no use. You see, my dear, I was in love with you. And you were free and your heart was your own, and nobody could hurt you. Very fine. Only it wasn't true, as you soon found out. When I found out, I could hardly believe it. It wasn't possible. Why, you had said a thousand times that you would not be jealous if I were in love with someone else, too. It was you who put the idea in my head. It seemed a part of your superhumanness. I did talk that way, but I was not a superman. I was only a damned fool. And Paul, when I realized that it might be hurting you, that you were human after all, I stopped. You know I stopped. Yes. That time. Can't you understand? I stopped because I thought you were a person like myself, suffering like myself. It wasn't easy to stop. It tore me to pieces. But I suffered rather than let you suffer. But when I saw you recover your serenity in a day, while the love that I had struck down in my heart for your sake cried out in a death agony for months, I felt again that you were superior, 
inhuman, and I hated you for it. Did I deceive you so well as that? And when the next time came, I wanted to see if it was real. This godlike serenity of yours. I wanted to tear off the mask. I wanted to see you suffer as I had suffered. That is why I was cruel to you the second time. And the third time? What about that? Well, I can't talk about that. I can't. It's too near. I beg your pardon. I don't wish to show an unseemly curiosity about your private affairs. If you were human, you would know that there is a difference between one's last love and all that have gone before. I can talk about the others, but this one still hurts. I see. Should we chance to meet next year, you will tell me about it then. The joys of new love will have healed the pains of the old. There will be no more joy or pain of love for me. You do not believe that, but that part of me which loves is dead. Do you think I have come through all of this unhurt? No, I cannot hope any more. I cannot believe. There is nothing left for me. All I have left is regret for the happiness that you and I have spoiled between us. Oh, Paul, why did you ever teach me your Olympian philosophy? Why did you make me think that we were gods and could do whatever we chose? If we had realized that we were only weak human beings, we might have saved our happiness. We tried to reckon with facts. I cannot blame myself for that. The facts of human nature. People do have love affairs within love affairs. I was not faithful to you. But you had the decency to be dishonest about it. You did not tell the truth, in spite of all your theories. I might have never found out. You knew better than to shake my belief in our love, but I trusted your philosophy and flaunted my lovers before you. I never realized- Be careful, my dear. You are contradicting yourself. I know I am. I don't care. I no longer know what the truth is. I only know that I am filled with remorse for what has happened. Why did it happen? Why did we let it happen? Why didn't you stop me? I want it back. But Helen- Yes, our old happiness. Don't you remember, Paul, how beautiful everything was? Give it back to me, Paul. Do you really believe, Helen? I know we can be happy again. It was all ours, and we must have it once more, just as it was. Paul. Paul! Let me think! Oh, you're thinking? I know. Think, then. Think of all the times I've been cruel to you. Think of my wantonness, my wickedness, not of my poor, tormented attempts at happiness. Think of my lovers, yes, think hard, and save yourself from any more discomfort. But no, you're in no danger. What do you mean? <laughs> you haven't believed what I've been saying all this while, have you? Almost. Then don't. I've been lying. Again? Again, yes. <laughs> I suspected it. Oh, wise man. You don't love me, then. Why should I? Do you want me to? I make no demands upon you. You know that. You can get along without me. Why not? Good. Then I'll tell you the truth. That would be interesting. I was afraid you did want me. And I was sorry for you, Paul. I thought if you did, I would try to make things up to you by starting over again. If you wanted to. So that was it. Yes, that was it. And so... You needn't say any more. Will you go or shall I? I'm going, Paul. 
but I think since we may not meet this time next year, that I better tell you the secret of that third time. When you asked me a while ago, I cried and said I couldn't talk about it. But I can now. You mean? Yes. My last cruelty. I had a special reason for being cruel to you. Shan't I tell you? Just as you please. <sighs> my reason was this. I had learned what it is to love. And I knew that I had never loved you. Never. I wanted to hurt you so much that you would leave me. I wanted to hurt you in such a way as to keep you from ever coming near me again. I was afraid that if you did forgive me and take me in your arms, you would feel me shudder and see the terror and loathing in my eyes. I wanted, for even then I cared for you a little, to spare you that. Are you going? Did you notice the date? It's the 8th of June. We used to celebrate it once a year. It's the day of our first kiss. So that was Enigma. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so next we're going to talk about um, just the facts of who Floyd Dell was and his work. So who was he? Floyd Dell, he was a novelist, a journalist, and a playwright. He was born in 1887 and he died in 1969. He was a man of many words and his writing influenced his whole life. Um, his first job, he was a reporter for a newspaper. Um, this was before he was even 20 years old. And then he moved to Chicago in 1908 and became the editor for a um, literary review called the Friday Literary Review. Um, he used this position to introduce modernist literature to many Americans who otherwise would not have access to that kind of literature. Five years after that, he moved to New York City. He became the leader of a community of pre-war bohemian socialists, which I think is just badass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he also became simultaneously the editor of The Masses, which is a socialist publication which was often described as radical. Then the uh, Espionage Act of 1917 was passed, and The Masses was declared treasonable material Eventually, the charges that were brought against them were dropped as jurors were unable to commit to a unanimous decision to convict. There was one juror who voted against conviction, who after stating his position was accused of being a communist himself and threatened by the other jurors to be dragged out of the court and publicly lynched. Oosh. That is a big yikes. <laughs> Needless to say, the masses ceased publication after that incident. However... Dell, alongside the creators of the masses, created a successor publication called The Liberator. It is in this magazine, publication, whatever you want to call it, that Enigma was originally published. So after that, um, in the late 30s, Dell joined the Federal Writers Project as an official and moved to D.C. 
and ironically, he ended his career in government work and retired in 1947. It's actually really interesting. It sounds like a lot of his work was very politically motivated, and I think it's cool how if you look at the year that he retired in 1947, that actually was right, be right before the 1950s Red Scare and McCarthyism. So it sounds like he had a lot of maybe like socialist undertones, a lot of communist undertones in a lot of his early work, and he knew the right time to get out of the government. <laughs> well, it's actually really interesting. Um, the Communist Party of America actually took up the Liberator after he left. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um so, another thing I wanted to talk about, um, research-wise, was the fact that I think he was influenced by Ibsen, Henrik Ibsen, um, the famous playwright of A Doll's House and Hedda Gabler. Um, so I think there's definitely some evidence to point to that. Um, both of them were very forward-thinking. If you actually go to floyddell.com, the tagline is Floyd Dell, a uh, progressive of the early 20th century. Um... And both Enigma and A Doll's House include a powerful female lead, leaving a man who once held power over them. Uh, they were both championed as first and second wave feminists. And Dell actually eventually wrote a play, a very, very short play, it's only like two or three pages, called Ibsen Revisited, where he examined Ibsen characters among his characters. It's really interesting. Um, but if we were to talk about everything that this man did, we would be sitting here for, like, hours. A and long he time. He did so much, so many different things. Um, but one last thing I do want to talk about in regards to Floyd Dell was the fact that he was a very devout feminist. Um, he's praised as being influential to the feminist movement of the early 20th century, um, in 1913, he actually published a collection of works of and about American and European leaders of the women's suffrage movement. Uh, many feminists actually came to him and told him, like, you need to do more. Like, as a man, like, you're already doing a lot for the feminist movement where many men weren't being feminists. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's very important to note mm -hmm. in regards to this piece too. Yeah, like long story short, Floyd Dell, super cool guy. If you want to know more about him, um, please do check out his website. There's a lot of really cool um, information on there, or you can reach out to us at our email address and we'll send you what we think is notable that was not included in that. Um, but next, we're going to open up our table to discussion. Woo! Um, we got a bunch of cool stuff we want to talk about today, but the first thing that we're going to start with is Helen. And do you think Paul is the man that she paints him to be, specifically when she references him as an Olympian or a godlike character? I think there's definite, like, I don't know. I, I think there's merit to what she's saying i i don't think any of us really know how we come off to other people and i also think that there are parts of us that other people will never know about mm -hmm. so um i think there's definitely some truth a lot of truth to what she's saying because she's been on the the brunt end of a lot of this olympian philosophy that she talks about mm -hmm. um but I think that's kind of the cool mystery about the piece is that this is a, a two-hander to its core, and we 
only get the the sides of two people. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that um, everything that she kind of directs at Paul and everything she accuses of Paul, I don't know if it's necessarily directed at him as a person. I think his character was really meant to be more symbolic of masculinity in that time. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, I think he's really meant to represent men or masculinity in that time period or um, who a husband was or what the husband's role was within a relationship. So I don't know if that that point Helen was making about him being a god or being Olympic, I don't know if that was him as her husband, as her um, former partner, or really... Um, Dell saying men in this age, husbands in this age, have an expectation of them to be cold and collected and distant and very stoic. So I think it's kind of interesting if you look at it, I think through your lens where you're looking at it, looking at Paul as an individual, you get one sense of her accusation. But if you look as Paul being representative of a demographic, you kind of get get a different idea. You see it as more of a statement being made. Yeah, you don't really hold it against him so much because if he is being used as like uh, as a symbol, then you're like, oh, well, Paul may not be that bad of a guy. But if he is meant to represent just a system, a system, a system of inequalities, a system of power over, then it becomes a much different discussion. So, on that same token, do you think that? Um... As much as Paul is a representation of the patriarchy of the early 20th century, do you think that Helen is a representation of the frustrated woman? I think in a lot of ways she is. I think Helen's story, uh, the story of her infidelities, the story of her rage at Paul may be a little unique Mm-hmm. To be able to spread it across the women's, like, the suffrage movement and the women's experience yeah. in that time frame. But I do think it was a lot more common than a lot of women realized. Um, we can go back and talk about um, masculinity and inequality in marriage. And I think a lot of people make the assumption that because men had more of the power in the home, men were the ones um, committing the infidelities. But there are many, many cases of women being the ones being unfaithful or stepping outside of their marriage because of their lack of happiness, because they found someone who wasn't the same um, male-dominating character as the one they may have at home, you know? So this mm-hmm. was a lot more common of an experience than I think we give women credit for. And I think that is just another example of history casting a lens on what women were. I think we can look back and say, well, women were incapable of this, or women were locked out of this um, society or this institution. Mm-hmm. But I think women, to up until today, are locked out of their sexuality, and even more so back then to where women were not thought of as sexual creatures. So people really didn't um, consider that a woman would step out of her marriage to pursue sexual right. um, fulfillment. So I think, um, I think out of the two of them, Helen is more so meant to represent an individual, but you can take her story and broaden it and, and apply it to a lot of women's story in that time. Gotcha. But I think she, in this play specifically, she is meant to be a, an individual fighting against this push of male dominance, and Paul is meant to be that, representational yeah. of that dominance. I got you. 
Um, the next thing I want to talk about is how much of Helen's story do you think is the truth? She fessed up to three different infidelities that Paul knew about before this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but she kind of flip-flopped how she didn't love him, she did love him, yeah. just kidding, I was lying. So, like, yeah. what do you think is the truth in what she said? Do you think there's any truth in what she said? What did you get? I think that the most, I think it's like a scale, you know, or like a, a spectrum of truth. Um, and the most truthful we get out of Helen is at the very end. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's not her, like, not wanting to tell the truth through the whole thing. I don't think it's her wanting to lie to him. I think this play is uh, a timeline of her realizing her unhappiness mm -hmm. and her own strength. Mm -hmm. And so at the end, you can see that blossom and see that she's realizing the truth for the first time herself. Mm -hmm. So if there was any lying in the first two-thirds of the play, I think it comes from the fact that she didn't realize up until that point that she has power. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think the line you're talking about is when she um, mentions how she never loved Paul, that she he would see loathing in her mm -hmm. eyes and things like that. I agree with you that that is a moment of truth. I agree with you that that is a sudden realization of truth for herself as well. Mm -hmm. I do also think there are flashes of truth in the beginning two-thirds of the piece. Yeah. But I think they're very quick, and I think she buries them. Because when she has those flashes of truth, they scare her. I think the end realization of her never loving him and her being confident enough to walk out of that relationship is because she realized that her unhappiness outweighed her dedication to possibly a status quo or mm -hmm. expectations of either other people having expectations on her relationship or her having expectations on her relationship. I think right. whenever any of us enter into what we can we think is going to be a long-term relationship, we have expectations about what that's going to look like, what we're going to do to get do together, what things are going to be meaningful to the both of us, and how that relationship is or isn't going to end. Right. Especially with a marriage, I think people <laughs> I don't know if they do, but I think they should enter a marriage assuming it's not going to end. Right. And so, right. <laughs> and so she, her realizing that her marriage is over and she might be okay with it is shattering oh, expectations yeah. that she it's, might it's have It's world-altering, I'm sure, but especially I think, at the time. Exactly. So I, I think there were flashes of truth in the beginning when she talks about um, the reasons why she was unfaithful, I think those are honest, especially with the second infidelity where she speaks about how she really wanted to test his humanness. If yeah. she wanted to see if she had the ability to hurt him, I think that's a flash of truth, and then it scares her, and she moves on. Yeah. And she talks about other things because women were not seen as having power in any relationship, yeah. so her being able to hurt her husband and him being... Uh, like quote unquote a victim of hers is a new idea is a new concept in itself right do you think infidelity was their main problem you know if we boil this piece down and we talk about two people getting divorced do you think infidelity was their main problem no <laughs> um i think it was one of their problems yes. um he says in the middle of the play 
I was unfaithful to you. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just Helen, even though it's all about, like, this whole play is talking about Helen's three mm-hmm. incidences. Um, he does admit and fess up to doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. But because he's not held to that same standard, it's not as important in the eyes of the play. I think infidelity is a result of their problems. I don't think oh, I would, I don't think I would even count it as one of their problems. I think it is strictly a result of it's the causation. issues. Yeah, it's of the issues they already have. I think one of their major problems is going to be intimacy, and I think more on a level of emotional intimacy. I think we can both just accept that these two people are sexual characters. They had sexual relationships. Um, and they had emotional relationships outside of their marriage, but did they have an emotional relationship between each other? I think we get a lot of coldness from Paul, and so we have to kind of make an assumption of who he was before this conversation took place. So for me as a reader, I would assume the coldness stretches back, Mm -hmm. and I would assume that he is closed off about his emotions. And... With Helen, she seems to be a very emotional speaker, very expressive, but she doesn't look for a connection with Paul. Helen is so focused on expressing herself that she is not looking for middle ground. Mm -hmm. So I think a lack of emotional intimacy might be an issue that maybe they searched for elsewhere. And I think being able to be vulnerable with one another, mainly Paul being able to be vulnerable, might have also been an issue because I think one of the one of the aspects of being a god, of being an Olympian, is you are not affected by the actions of mere mortals. So you cannot be hurt by someone who is not of your level. So I think the lack of vulnerability added to him seeming out of her reach. And I think that can even be uh, traced back even then to toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Um, That unwillingness to be vulnerable and to feel things with your partner Mm -hmm. and do you think that our characters represent or in some way circumvent gender roles i mean if Uh, we're going to talk about gender let's go (laughs) (laughs) um i think that um paul i mean i agree with you paul is definitely a representation of like a system of uh of the patriarchy especially Mm -hmm. in the early 20th century Mm -hmm. um so I think, I, I think this whole play is about gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's about defying traditional gender roles. It's not just about pointing them out. It's about turning them on their head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's very evident with Helen. Mm-hmm. Just as, as a person. Yeah. Helen just, she pops off, I think. Um, and she realizes her power. Mm-hmm. She realizes that, you know, this system is so screwed up, mm-hmm. I think, and she's not going to stand by it anymore. Yeah, I think this piece is a very digestible way to buck the system, you know? Um, you had talked about, when you were talking about Floyd Dell, how he was part of the first and second feminist wave, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think a lot of the work that he did might have been like, Hey, women are cool. They're equal, you know. But I think this is kind of this is kind of a more like down home. Like anyone can watch this and get get a similar message out of it. Way to present like like women have power. It's not our job to control or 
um, take away or give them power. They have power, you right. know? And men can be affected by that power. So I think this is a really, um, I feel like subtle is the wrong word, but just a very um, just easy way to be able to get that word out and still have people who maybe are not on the equality train watch it, enjoy it, learn from it. Right. Yes, definitely. <clears throat> um, shortly after this play is actually published, women actually get the right to vote. Yay! Um, <laughs> so, should we consider that uh, this playwright, Floyd Dell, is giving a voice to the independent woman, and do you think the outcome or the impact of this piece would be different if it was written by a woman? 100%. I think that it's obvious in any form of media that men, male writers, just don't know how to write women. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this whole play would have another layer of authenticity should it have been written by a woman. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, that if the playwright was female and if they were writing this piece while living the experience, it might be different. I couldn't tell you how it would be different. I just don't feel like it would be the same. No, absolutely. But I also don't think that she, as a playwright, would have the following that Del had. That's, that was my first thought, was that this, you know, you gotta, the, the, the patriarchy, it, I feel like, is a system that needs to be broken with the help from within the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Dell and Ibsen and the great feminist writers mm -hmm. that were, that happened to be men, um, they, they have the following and they have an audience at this point in time. So would it have been different and more authentic should this play have been written by a woman? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I don't think at the time this play would have received the following it did. I agree with you. Um, it's just, oh, speaking as a woman, it's just infuriating thinking that something that had such an impact and a person that had such an impact on moving forward women's rights was a man. Yeah. Because yeah. I 100% agree with you that, like, everyone should be a feminist, you know? Yeah. Everyone... Because and everyone can be a exactly, feminist. Exactly, and because feminism is equality, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just frustrating to know all of the hard work that all women, but especially women of color, that don't get the recognition in this time period... But he is able to stand up and speak and get get noticed and be able to help make some changes. And use his platform. Yeah, so it's very it's very respectable. It's very amazing that he did that. It's just that one little, oh, you know, be, just yeah. because women are ignored, they couldn't do, you know. Right. So it, it sticks on me. But, you know, it's okay because he was a good guy, so. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the good ones. Yeah. Um, do you think Helen and Paul could have salvaged their relationship? Either in that time, well, not either, but first in that time period, and then if we considered their marriage to be in present-day society. I don't think so, and I don't want them to. <laughs> you don't want them to be together. <laughs> in, the, in the ethereal, out-of-play land where they live. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't want them to. Just because this, the moment when Helen says, I was lying, 
That was, that's her moment of realization. That is when her world stops and she realizes that she is better than this. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't need Paul and she's, she has power within mm-hmm. herself. And I think that any salvaging of the relationship would either require Paul to do a 360 as a human being. 360 means he'd be back where he's. Then I think he would do a 180. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at math. But, um, I, yeah, he'd, he'd need to completely change who he is, was. Yeah. Um, and, or she would have to go back and walk back everything she said. I think the way this play ends is not happy or, or, um, great in a way but it's 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 great for helen yeah i think if we had taken this play and we transplanted it into the the life that we're living right now into the society we're living in right now i don't think they would be able to salvage it i think what's done is done you cheat it's over move on right i think in our society we have a lot more acceptance for um open relationships and for being like sexually exploratory but once the commitment to monogamy has been made there's not a lot of forgiveness well yeah and i'm i'm wondering now like as i'm thinking about it i'm wondering if they had a semi-open relationship and i'm wondering if the cruelties that paul described Mm -hmm. were just her flaunting them in front of him because he said in the or uh, Helen said that she got the idea from him being mm-hmm. unfaithful mm-hmm. and that they that he had the um, decency to just keep it to himself mm-hmm. and that private affairs are private affairs. Yeah, I don't. Th- I wouldn't say they have an open relationship because she had literally using what you just said. He had the decency to not tell her. Right. I think he may have, maybe have operated on the like. We're not exclusive. Don't don't ask, don't tell, you know? Like, what what you don't know... Which I don't think necessarily will work in a marriage. Well, yeah, (laughs) but, but like, you know, what you don't know for sure won't hurt you. Right. That kind of thing. No, definitely. And so, once he knew for sure, you know, once she wasn't ashamed of her actions, that's when it hurt. When she wasn't sorry for doing it, that's when it hurt. Um, Going back to my earlier point, I don't think the relationship would have survived now, but I think back in the the exact year that it was published in, women were not viewed as people who could uh, flourish as individual units. Right. Um, It was very hard for them to get um, substantial employment, to be able to support themselves, to be respected as a head of their own household, even if it was a household of one. As a singular. Exactly. So... Um, as much as I would love to say, like, this is over for Helen, and she made it out the other side, and she, if she doesn't want to be in the relationship, she doesn't have to be. She's got a lot of hardship ahead. She either has a lot of hardship ahead, or she will be going, she will be going back. And whether or not Paul makes any changes, that would remain to be seen. I think a very realistic view of what Helen's life would look like if she had walked out that day in 1922 she would have gone to stay with her parents or a sister or a brother or, you know, a family member. 
sustained being away for a few weeks and then most likely have returned because Mm -hmm. a lot of women, especially women who are survivors of domestic violence in that time, would be able to get themselves out of the home. Right. But a lot of women would return because of society making it impossible for them to live on their own. And that is still a fact for a lot of people's lives nowadays. But it was very extreme at that time. So as much as I want independence and happiness for Helen, I don't think she would have got it. You know? I I honestly 100% agree. I think that... I don't think this play is meant to have, like, a happy ending. I think it's... It's unsatisfying at the very least. Yeah, I think we're meant to root for Helen. Mm -hmm. And if you don't root for Helen, like, what's wrong with you? But also... (laughs) But also, like, if... I don't know. I just feel like we're supposed to feel that unsatisfaction we're supposed Mm -hmm. to dissatisfaction is the word i was looking for (laughs) but we're supposed to feel that and uh and acknowledge that for her yeah Uh, the life of the woman at that that time was unsatisfying in many ways so i definitely agree that that's that's what we're supposed to be left with um so that's really the end of our discussion i think we got through a lot of really cool really productive topics today of course, we could keep going on, but we are trying to be respectful of y'all's time. Yeah, I think um, I think in the future we're going to explore another one of Floyd Dell's work. Yes, we very much liked working on his piece. Um, we, I feel like we put a lot of heart into it. But yeah, if and you we have can any, explore more about him. Too. Oh yeah. Um, if you guys have any questions about anything that we said, have any comments, um, want to share anything that you know or would want to know about Floyd Dell or Enigma or anything like that, please hit us up on our email. Um, it's earwormaudiotheater at gmail.com. Theater spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Woo. Um, but reach out to us and let us know. Nice things, please. Don't be mean. But <laughs> very fragile. <laughs> We're sensitive. But um, thank you guys so much for listening. Do you have anything to say before we wrap up? I don't think so. Just tune in. Uh, we're going to try and have new episodes every Sunday at 6 p.m. Um, it might be around that time as we're still figuring out how uploading podcasts work. <laughs> but... Wish us luck. <laughs> um, but stay safe and stay home. Stay home, you guys. Bye.